You're listening to a Wheeler Centre podcast. And I was, for much of the time in prison, striving to have my voice heard and having others silence me. So for that reason, it was really important for me to write the book. The following conversation was presented in partnership with Penn Melbourne to mark the day of the imprisoned writer. Beiruz Buchani and Kylie Moore Gilbert join host Karen Percy for a conversation about the importance of freedom of speech and press and the role writers play in challenging oppressive regimes. Thank you so much. I want to pay uh, my respects to the First Nations people who are our original storytellers in Australia and we are looking at a long line of brilliant storytellers in this country. It is indeed my great pleasure to be introducing our two uh, guests today and also uh, being able to moderate this panel. Uh, Kylie Moore Gilbert was a Melbourne academic at a conference in Tehran when she ran into trouble with the authorities. She was detained in Iran in 2018 and uh, finally released in 2020. She was accused of being a spy. She was subjected to inhumane conditions, psychological torture. Her book, The Uncaged Sky, um, talks in great detail about her experiences. It's a, a distressing, disturbing, enlightening read. So welcome, Kylie Moore Gilbert. Thank you. <clears throat> Beros Buchani wrote No Friend But the Mountain, published in quite extraordinary circumstances, written via uh, thousands of text messages. He was on Manus Island from 2013 and left Manus Island in 2020. His new publication, Freedom Only Freedom, is a series of essays also based on poems and writings from Beros's time on Manus Island, and he has collaborated in that book with a number of other, uh, there's journalists and um, activists and the like. Beruz left Iran when he was 30, year, 30 years old, fearing persecution because of his advocacy for Kurdish culture and identity. These days he lives in Wellington, New Zealand. We have our empty chair today, but in the discussions in the lead up to this panel, uh, we could have had left every chair in this room empty and still really not scratched the surface in terms of the writers around the world who have been detained, imprisoned or otherwise oppressed. So I firstly want to ask the two of you, and I'll have you uh, uh, answer first, Kylie, why are countries and regimes so determined to lock up writers? What are they frightened of? I think it's pretty clear that unfortunately they're frightened of what these writers have to say, the challenge that these writers might be to you know, their system of power and of control of the populace that, you know, at the end of the day, we're largely talking about authoritarian regimes here that, that they've set up to control their people and to keep a lid on any dissent um, or any thinking that might be seen as a challenge to not only the political structure, but also perhaps the society and its norms that that regime might prefer to remain in place as well. Beruz. Yeah, thank you for having us. Uh, yeah, actually, that is a big question, uh, and many people, you know, in the history have been trying to answer this question. But I think the power is in the world, and uh, you know, when I received that award for Victorian Prize in the statement that I released, exactly I mentioned this: uh, 
that uh, how literature is powerful, you know, the, the powerful language to challenge uh, power structure, you know, challenge the uh, governments or officials who oppressed people or did persecute people or, you know. So I think that is quite clear and I think the writers already proved that. Not me, many, yeah, <laughs> in the history. Kylie, you went to extraordinary lengths uh, while you were detained in Iran. Um, firstly, you were made to write things and then you weren't allowed to write things. So there were, was this bizarre push and pull about the authorities allowing you and then not allowing you. And then uh, for those of you who may have read the book, I'll try not to do too many spoilers, but leaving notes and, and writing in, in tissues. Walk us through the process of trying to write under those kind of circumstances. It's actually a really interesting paradox that I discussed with many of my fellow prisoners. They put you in solitary for the, you know, the beginning during the interrogations um, in Iran. It's just a standard thing. Some people only get a week, others get three months. Um, I got one month um, in, in extreme solitary confinement situation. So you're deprived of any means of expressing yourself whatsoever. And I discussed it with some of my fellow prisoners. After a while, you kind of look forward to going to interrogation. And there's some weird psychological thing going on there, but part of it is you get to write and you get to express yourself, obviously with you know, um, a great amount of risk and, and danger to whatever you're saying, but it is still you get to speak and somebody's listening to what you have to say, even though you know, they, they're out to get you. And you get to write. Um, and in Iran, they would ask you verbal questions, but they would often give you sort of letterhead, um, in my case, Revolutionary Guard letterhead paper um, with lines on it, and you would have to write down by hand everything that you're saying in, in verbal response to their questions. So I would actually, in a way, look forward to that writing in the interrogation, even though I knew it was a minefield and I would be tripping myself up by whatever I was saying and trying to be really careful about what I was, was trying to write there. I actually still after days and days being alone in solitary with nothing to do, kind of appreciated the opportunity to write even under such circumstances. So it did, you know, mean a lot to me. And, and you know, obviously further down the track, I was able to write things that were not censored by myself or others. Um, and many of those things that I wrote never made it out or saw the light of day. It would have been too dangerous. But the act of writing itself had meaning to me and power and resonance then and there too. Um, and you mentioned the notes I would write and things I would smuggle out. Um, you know, I've perhaps been talking for too long now, I can go into that later. But for me, I guess in some, the act of writing, even under interrogation, was still in a way powerful um, in contrast to being alone in my cell with nothing to do and, and going stir crazy. Beru's, your process was very, very different. Walk us through that. And I'm interested to see also the contrast between the new book, where it's still looking at poems and writings from your time in Manus, but also you were able to write outside. Can you compare the two? Can you tell us about what it was like when you were sending all of those texts and then now you've written a book that you've actually been able to write some of it under normal conditions? Yeah, actually, uh, first uh, I should say something about what Kylie said. I think the our cases, of course, is same because we were in prison, but 
in many ways is different. So she was writing and she imprisoned in a country that the government, uh, you know, look at the writers as an enemy and they imprisoned many writers and they killed many writers in the, in the history of Iran. So it's, re it's really different. But in Australia, is a liberal democracy. But again, it's different because I am a refugee. I was a refugee. And I was banished to Manus Island to be out of sight and out of mind. So again, I was different compared to Australian citizen. But still, is Australia is a liberal democracy. So I think that is really different when you look at it. But uh, regarding my books, actually, so the, this, the second book uh, mostly is my essays. So, uh, you know, when I was in Manus Island, I think I published like 100 uh, articles. So they were not reports, just opinion piece to analyze that system and look at Manus in, from different aspects. Uh, like uh, understand and analyze Manus and Nauru in the context of politics. Some of the story articles are just about like politics. Some of them are about uh, Manusian people that no one really talk about them, but they've been a part of this. Some of them about some individuals in inside Manus. So in from different like perspective. So these two books, when I compare them, so a big part of this book was written in Manus Island, but I had to publish it, you know, collect these essays together. And I think it's really important that I, I had to publish this book. But of course, when I came out of Manus was a different story. So for in Manus Island, I was fighting I was uh, writing to expose that system. But in the same time, it writing was an act of uh, survivalness as well, survival. So I was, I can say I survived through my writing as well. But when I came out uh, of Manus, I was in uh, New Zealand. I was in the university. I had an office. It was peaceful, so that was a big process. You know, it took time for me to get back to write, and I felt that my mind is like is empty. Yeah, because it was completely different world for me. So I had to live in New Zealand for a while, that the stories come. What strikes me about <clears throat> No Friend But the Mountain is such violent difficult, challenging writing and that flows right into extraordinary poetry with empathy and love. How do you juggle that? How does that come out of your mind? Yeah. Sorry, that was in the first question yes. I forgot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think uh, a part of it is, uh, I think, come from the prison itself. So when you are in the prison, you, I think you imagine many things. So. Uh, but I think a part of it is uh, because these uh, articles, I wrote them in Farsi. But you know, Farsi in Kurdish and even in Arabic is quite a poetic language. So actually, the writers in Iran most of the time try uh, 
to get distance from that. They try to just uh, don't uh, use poetry or don't be poetic. So it's like a challenge for them. And I think that is related to the language, you know? So that's what I understand. But I think I'm quite poetic as well. I myself in my like personal life. Yeah. Uh, Kylie, you learned Farsi while you were imprisoned. I'm, uh, and, and, and it strikes me that's an, another of the kind of commonalities between the work that you're doing is that Beruz, despite Kurdish being his uh, you know, native language, if you like, was writing in, in Farsi, and you were learning Farsi too. Tell me the significance of that and why you felt you needed to, other than, I guess, passing the time, what was the significance of that? I think, for me at least, you know, learning Farsi at the very beginning for the first six months was something I actively resisted because it would mean an admission that I'm here for the long haul. I mean, if why is it necessary for me to learn this language? I'm going to get out anyway. I'm going to be free soon anyway. So it was about admitting to myself first, I require this language to survive in this place, in this prison. Nobody speaks English. I mean, we're talking about revolutionary guards, Sapai people who, you know, um, have not even finished high school, most of them in their own language. They don't speak English. Um, and it's a survival necessity to defend yourself, uh, not only from the other prisoners, but from your own interrogators and prison guards. So um, at the beginning, I, I resisted, I closed my ears, I, you know, tried not to learn much because it would, I could not admit to myself that I need this language because I'm here for a long time. Uh, but after six months or so, when I really came to perceive the depth of the trouble I was in and I had gone to the court, I'd heard the bill of indictment, I understood I'm going to be put on trial and the whole thing's this kangaroo court situation, I then flipped completely and just dedicated myself to studying Farsi. Um, you know, I, I got a dictionary and a grammar book from the embassy and just taught myself the language and basic from watching TV, from translating the, the Etelat newspaper. Yeah. I don't know why Etelat was the only paper we were allowed to, to look at. Um, and only for about nine, ten months we could get this Etelat and then they took it away again. Uh, and so, and all, all of it regime propagandistic media, you know, so Sadao Sima, only four channels of the Iranian state broadcaster we could watch, all of them propaganda, and then this Etilat, which is also government propaganda, so, and speaking with prison guards and revolutionary guard members. So the kind of farsi that I got from all of that was this sort of, I guess, a highly religious, uh, highly kind of Islamist pro-Iranian regime um, vocabulary. <laughs> um, and sometimes, you know, I would talk to my fellow prisoners as I, as I went on in Farsi and they would say, you sound exactly like a revolutionary guard person. <laughs> why, are you, why are you saying inshallah or mashallah after every sentence? <laughs> you know, but that's how I learned it. So it's, it's, it's fascinating actually, but I'm glad I did. And unfortunately now it's become quite rusty. You kindly told me that writing The Uncaged Sky was about correcting the record to a large degree. So much had been said about your life and what was going on at times. Has it worked? Have you been able to correct the record through? And, and are people, has the narrative changed about your situation? 
I don't know. I mean, it, for me, it was really important to tell my story in my own words, as I'm sure it was for Behrouz, because so much had been written of, you know, lies and BS from the Iranian side, at least. You know, they made 15-minute-long propaganda clip about me, which they showed on national TV on, on the day I was released, and other clips during my incarceration, too. Um, and so I wanted to say, hey, this is complete, you know, fallacy and um, this is actually what happened to me, this is what you did to me uh, and have my own voice there because, you know, for so long I didn't have a voice and I had others speaking on my behalf which I didn't know about, some of which I, I might not have agreed with and I was, for much of the time in prison, striving to have my voice heard and having others silence me. Um, so for that reason, it was really important for me to write the book. And I'd say it was more of an internal setting the record straight and reckoning for me as a person rather than something to necessarily try and address for the public. I'm wondering, Veruz, um, you were instrumental in the two writers that we have um, honoured tonight. I wonder who else you might want to pay attention to or have us pay attention to with the day of the imprisoned writer upon us? Yeah, I think, uh, so I just uh, should appreciate Arnold for uh, reading that about Ashkan. It's really important that we remember people, writers, especially this Kurdish writer, because the, the language is really, is, in, is not formal, formally recognized. And that is, uh, you know, I myself, uh, I learned Farsi when I was at the school. And the, actually, the first time that I started to speak Farsi was when I was like 18 years old, when I moved to Tehran. So, uh, so this language, yeah, it's a big challenge in Iran. So many people are trying to save this language. Uh, and are fighting for that. So, but, uh, but I'd like to mention uh, Sepide Kolyan. Uh, she is a writer and I think she wrote a very uh, good uh, like uh, book, a small book, mm -hmm. uh, uh, while she was in prison and now she's in prison again. Because when she came out, she started to speak out and they put her in prison again. So uh, I just wanted to... On the same day, she was let out of Evin, yeah. started chanting straight away Mark Khamenei yeah. or something, and straight away picked her up and took her straight back on the same day, right? Yeah, yeah, back exactly. Yeah, yeah, but uh, again, I should uh, talk about Ashkan as well. It's really important, people like Ashkan, that how they put themselves in a huge risk for language. You know, that is, uh, you know, for many people here, probably they, it's very unbelievable, you know, but uh, people like Ashkan, uh, you know, I really proud of them or, you know, yeah, it's really, it's emo it's emotionally it's difficult for me because I was in the same context as well. You know, I come from Kurdistan, I come from a city that I could see that how activists or writers were trying to teach these people to respect their own language. 
but the whole system design that our people just assimilate and we lose the language. So in my, uh, I, I think I'm not too old, <laughs> but I've seen how a language is dying in my life. Many words I remember. And when I read Kurdish, that remember, I remember that, wow, how many words we lost. You know, so that is a tragedy. Yeah, so I'm not exaggerating this. It is the huge tragedy that I ever seen in my life and I witness is losing my mother language. I think and that, that make me really angry. Understandably. You know? Carly, who were the writers that you think we need to be paying attention to? Gosh, I mean, we're, there's too many in Iran even, <laughs> just talking about Iran. Um, there's obviously a lot around the world. I mean, there's sort of Jimmy Lai in, in Hong Kong, for instance, springs to mind. I know Penn's done a lot of advocacy for Julian Assange as well. Um, you know, a friend of mine in prison was Nasrin Sutudeh, who also, like Nargis Mohammadi, is, is part of the same circle of women that have been long-standing advocates for human rights and women's rights in Iran for, you know, 20 years, 15, 20 years or so. She was imprisoned last week um, for attending the funeral of Armita Geravand, the 16-year-old girl who um, was recently killed by the morality police uh, on the Tehran metro for not wearing a hijab. Um, and she's a, you know, human rights activist and lawyer um, who was originally imprisoned for representing her clients and her clients had removed their hijab in public long before the current uprising and she was also imprisoned for standing up and representing her clients um, and she was you know a remarkable person that I spent some time with in Karchak prison um, and so I think about her because she's she was beaten last week this is a woman who's in her 50s and has to um, children also, similar situation to Nargis Mohammadi. And um, beaten, thrown back in Ghachak, probably will go back to Evian and will be with Nargis in the end. But, you know, these people, the, the sacrifice they make is remarkable because they're, they know what will happen to them. They know by, at this point. They've been imprisoned multiple times. They know they will be imprisoned again, more charges, more cases. It's just an endless cycle. Yet they have to stand up for what they believe in and they will continue not to falter in, in defending um, the rights of, of those that are vulnerable in society. And she's really a heroic figure to me and I really appreciated her um, and her sort of calm, peaceful view of the world that she had when she was in prison. It was so striking um, given all she'd been through. So she's sort of in my mind right now in terms of Iran at least. I'm actually going to throw it open to the two of you to ask each other a couple of questions because I think the experiences that you've had and the crossover of knowledge um, is really quite extraordinary to have the two of you on the stage at the same time, but also, you know, your experiences are very different too. So who wants to start? Beirut, are you going to ask the first question? Yeah, I think my question is related to uh, your question, uh, the previous one, is about uh, Zainab Jalalian. Zainab Jalalian is a Kurdish uh, <coughs> prisoner. She's been in prison for more than 15 years and uh, we don't really hear from her so 
she was sick for a long time, and I just wonder, uh, I, I know when you were in Evin and then you were in Karchak. So I saw your name on a, a letter that was released uh, well, by uh, women prisoners. And uh, I saw uh, Zainab Jalalian name as well. So I just, my question is that, have you heard about her while you were there or, yeah? I know who Zainab Jalalian is, but I haven't met her, unfortunately. Um, I was never taken to the, the Banda Zanan of, of Evin where Nargis Mohammadi is, Zainab is. A lot of the really prominent um, Iranian female political prisoners are held in this wing. Uh, I was kept in a Revolutionary Guard facility called Dualef in inside Evin and was never sent to that ward where Zainab is. And instead, I was sent to Qarchak. Um And I was desperate to go there. I was desperate. All of these women are amazing. It, it's, you know, it's like it's called Evin University. They, you learn so much from these people. It would have been like a joy for me to go to that ward and to meet these incredible inspirational women. And I was begging to go there and that's one reason why they didn't send me, I think. They knew I wanted to be there and they didn't want to give me that joy. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, you know, Zainab and, and the others there are all very remarkable and the activism that they continue to do from inside the prison, despite punishment uh, and you know, um, Nargis Mohammadi hasn't been able to speak on the phone to her family for more than a year now because of punishments for her activism within the prison, for instance. Um, it's it's amazing they're so steadfast. But yeah, I I knew quite a few Kurdish prisoners um, in Qarchak, but there were a few in Dwalif as well. Um, but unfortunately, I never met Zainab Jalalian. And what yeah, would you like to ask me? Or you got you got to follow through? Uh, no, actually, <laughs> I asked my question. I, I feel that we speak very slowly, is that right? You, you hear us well? Yeah. Oh, yeah, good. Yeah. No, we don't have a big energy it's like that, <laughs> I, I feel it, yeah. yeah. Um, Kylie, what would you like to ask Beirut? I just wanted to pick up on what Beirut was saying earlier about the Kurdish language and the Farsi language and... Um, I guess, you know, the, the answer is probably self-evident. You know, why did you decide to write your book in Persian and not in Kurdish? Yeah, I think that is a very um, important question, you know, in that context. Uh, so my Kurdish, I, I know Kurdish uh, very well, but the problem is that in Iran we are not... Uh, allowed to, uh, you know, educate in Kurdish. So. That's why my Farsi is very well, you know, and I am educated in Farsi. So Kurdish, later when I was like uh, 22, 23 years old, I started to uh, teach myself how to write and read. So, but still, uh, you know, we, uh, you know, it, it's harder for me to write in Kurdish. Uh, but uh, in Manus Island was quite a different case as well because in Manus it was not really important for me uh, to write it in Farsi or Kurdish. I just wanted to publish it in English. That was important for me. Even I was not thinking to publish my work in Farsi on future. So I had to write it in English and just get, uh, you know, 
translated and just published it in English because I was aiming to... Mm. English uh, audience. Yeah, yeah, English audience and especially people of Australia. So that's why. But now, actually, I'm writing Kurdish. My mm. short stories, I'm working on them and uh, I write in Kurdish. Yeah. It's funny because um, a lot of the letters that I had published were written in Farsi, so it's the opposite of what you're yeah. saying. Um, somebody translated them from Farsi to English, and it's exactly like the opposite. Yeah. And these were not letters that I'd written to be published. They were letters I wrote to judiciary, revolutionary guard authorities, judges, um, various prison authorities in Farsi, stating, you know all of the abuses of my rights or denying various requests or whatever it was and copies of these letters were leaked and translated into English so it's this strange parallel actually yeah it is but it's quite interesting uh, with uh, language Farsi is really a beautiful language Farsi has a long a history of uh, literature and poetry, all of that. And I know that how this language is beautiful. But the problem is, uh, for me, is a killer language, you know, is an uh, oppressed language, is a language that dominate my mother language. So that is quite sad because languages are really important. Languages are beautiful, especially Farsi. But, uh, you know, it become like uh, how they politicize these languages and uh, they use them. And I think that is quite, um, my feeling towards Farsi is uh, quite paradoxical. Mm, I can imagine, actually. Yeah. It's a love-hate sort of relationship. I even Actually, I don't true. hate the language itself. Mm. I like Farsi, but, you know, it's hard because, you know, I want to write in Kurdish, mm. you know. So that is quite paradoxical. But the language itself, uh, yeah, it's just a language. How, how can I hate a language, you know? Or, yeah, that is it's very paradoxical. I want to ask... Um, Kylie, who is prisoner number 97029 to you these days? She's the same person. That was my prison number in, in Evin. Uh, she's the same person. I don't think I've dramatically transformed or changed in any you know, remarkable way. I'm still the same person I was. In a way, I think, and maybe Behrouz would say the same, you learn so much about yourself in prison or in any really difficult life circumstance. Um, that maybe I know myself a bit better and I know more about who that person is today than I did back then when I was given that number. And in good ways, not just in bad ways. Um, you know, it's in the really hard times that you figure out who you are and what you stand for and what matters to you and what matters in life too. And it's so easy to take that stuff for granted when you're just living here in Australia, living your normal life. Um, so for me... It's the same person, but hopefully one that has a bit more depth of understanding of, of who I am as well. Beruz, MEG45, who is that man to you now? Uh, actually, uh, there are many untold stories. So in those years, and uh, I share many of them just to just close friends, not in the public. Yeah, but... Uh, <laughs> 
Yeah, it's hard to talk about them, yeah. But uh, I think MEG45, MEG045, that was my name for many years. And, uh, you know, everyone in Manus Island, they just they call us by number. And, you know, it's easy to that people call you by a number for a short time, but not for six years. It's, it's quite difficult. But uh, I used to call myself Meg, so still, <laughs> yeah, still is a name. So, uh, but the, yeah, of course, six years in that place was hugely, you know, impact on me. And six years is too long, even in a out of prison. So we change a lot in six years. You can't go to university and finish PhD, <laughs> actually. So that was uh, actually, yeah, of course, hugely impact on me. But I feel that I became a better person. Yeah, that is my understanding. Yeah. When you left Iran in 2013, you had one possession with you, as I understand it, a book of poetry. What did that book mean? Do you still have it? No, I don't have that book, actually. When I arrived in Christmas Island, I had only that book, even I didn't have shoes. <laughs> yeah, so because we lost everything on the, the ocean in the first trip, actually. Yeah, that book was uh, uh, actually uh, Farsi book, Farsi poetry, written by my friend uh, Sabir Haka that he's a, a poet and uh, he signed it in the exhibition when, you know, in her book uh, launch, and he gave it to me. But I don't know why he wrote something on that book. Still, I, he said that for Beirut, for his suffering, and said, and then when I left and, you know, I ended up in Manus Island. But I lost that book uh, <clears throat> in the riot 2014. So when they attack our uh, prison camp and they, then they kick us out. Uh, when we came back after two hours, yeah, they took everything, including the book. But I imagine that book later, because the local people in Manus Island, they love to make secret by newspaper. <laughs> yeah, and actually sometimes it's quite funny. Sometimes they had, a, I hear that conversation between them. They had two newspaper in uh, Papua New Guinea, National, and uh, another one was Post Courier, something like that. And they had a conversation. One of them said that National has a better taste. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I wonder if the age and the Herald Sun have some kind yeah, of... Yeah, yeah, something like that, yeah. But I feel that that book became uh, like cigarettes, so it's local people smoke. <laughs> Kylie, was there anything that you had with you that you still have, or is there a poetry book along... Is there, is there something similar from your experience that... There's nothing I took into prison that I could keep when I was there, but I have managed to bring a fair few things out with me, um, really random stuff. And you kind of hang on to them as sort of little treasures for a while in a really weird way. And then after a while, you say to yourself, this isn't healthy, I need to get rid of this stuff. 
I was speaking with um, Anusha Ashuri, who's a, another former Evan inmate, a, a British Iranian who was released in a deal a few years ago. And he's wanting to make a museum exhibition of all of the treasures, quote unquote, that he collected in Evan prison. And I, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, that's great, but at the same time, it's not healthy to hang on to all of them for so long. Um, you know, I have random stuff like the, the ready meals that we could buy in Qachak that were sort of, I don't know, they look like army sort of tins that they'd give to soldiers as rations. We could buy them in the, the prison um, shop and I, some of them managed to come out with me in, in the random assortment of possessions the embassy was given. Um, similarly, you know, uh, plastic spoons and things, my chador that I had to wear came out with me. Um, some little things that I wrote in Karchak did, um, but none of my writings from Evin did, uh, of course. So nothing that was precious. The, the, actually, my most precious possession was in a massive Aryanpur, I think it's called Dictionary, English-Persian. Was, this was my reference. This is what I learned the language from. I'd written all sorts of annotations in the margins. It was a tome. It was, you could kill someone with it. You know, it was a weapon. It was huge. And the, the rev guards, it was in my possessions as I was checking out of the Douala facility in Evin to go to the airport to leave Iran. And one of them stole it from my luggage. On the day I was leaving, they took it from me. And it, was, it broke my heart because this was my constant companion. Um, and I might have also written some poetry very in small letters in some of the margins as well that I wanted to, to take out. So um, the fact that that didn't come with me and all this other random stuff like meal kits and chadors and things did was, was quite heartbreaking. Um, both of your books uh, chronicle great cruelty. But for me, I was struck by the small cruelties. I was saying this to Baruch today that... Um, when the Manus guards um, rubbed out the backgammon, um, the, the, the prisoners had put a backgammon board on the pl plastic table, I guess, and it had been rubbed out. And then for you, Kylie, um, with reference to the chador, that you, know, you were made to wash your hair and expose your hair. And I just wonder, is, is that a writing technique or is just me picking up on something. I'm just very curious about the small things that seem to indicate cruelty in a way that certainly struck me much more than even the bigger picture. Yeah, I think uh, that is really interesting, you know, when the, at the beginning, later they let us, but at the beginning, like the first six months, we were not allowed to have uh, music, listen to music, uh, have a, you know, even dictionary, nothing, you know. And the people were, you know, even they didn't let us to play backgammon, they draw it. Uh, so I think, uh, you know, for me, that is in a big context. So that for people who follow my writing, they know, uh, they should definitely know about the article that I wrote is the title is Manus Prison Theory. So in Manus Prison Theory, uh, you know, I talk about, uh, look at the Manus as a system, as a systematic torture, and I use the concept caracal system. So in the caracal system, means a system of control. Uh, 
That means that the prisoners all the time, even for one moment, they shouldn't forget that they are under watch. So against that system, the best way to challenge it is to be creative. And uh, to be this creativity, it means it can be writing, singing, I don't know, performance, and playing backgammon, you know? Or be you, funny, you know, being humor, you know, the, using the, the humor language. So I mean that anything in that context that in my book actually uh, so those details that you mentioned about you know how they didn't let us to play the game, actually that is just to remind us that you are under control, and we decide what you do. You know, so that's why uh, I think uh, yeah we should look at it in that way. But there are many examples for that Kali? in the book. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it, there's a deliberate dehumanization strategy um, where you're forced in prison to beg for scraps of anything that's going to allow you to demonstrate creativity, to demonstrate individuality, that you're not just this number, but that you're a, a human being, um, you know, a complex person beyond, you know, just being another face in the crowd in a prison cell. And they also reduce you to the level of you know, quibbling and, and scrapping over the small things so that you don't resist on the big things. Um, and, you know, for me, I didn't have books for five months at the beginning. I didn't have writing material, a paper or a pen for probably eight, nine months, um, not a legal one anyway. And so then when they gave that to me, it was... I was constantly afraid they would take it away again. And they did from time to time. It would be a carrot or a stick thing. You know, if, you, if you're badly behaved, then we'll take it away. If you're good, we'll give it back. And, you know, you, you started... To, you know, I, people would go on hunger strike just to get some basic thing, you know, like the ability to play backgammon, for instance, like Behrouz is mentioning, rather than go on hunger strike to be freed or to protest against their treatment in court, or to demand to see a lawyer prior to, be sent to being sent to court. Reducing you to the level of having these tiny carrots and sticks that you can occupy yourself with trying to get hold of was also a mechanism to stop you from resisting for the big stuff. Because if you needed to wage such a huge battle just to get a pen, or just to get some food that wasn't the, the standard prison fare, um, or to get sanitary items, or to see a doctor, then the war that you would have to wage to um, have your rights met in court would just be insurmountable to you as a prisoner. So I think it's sort of dehumanising you and keeping you in your place is one you know, aspect of this, this strategy, these small cruelties. We are coming towards the end. I do want to um, ask Kylie, you've got uh, what, what the project, projects you have on the go at the moment. Um, obviously, there's a, a, a little one. Um, and if anybody hasn't seen the Australian story on Kylie and Sammy, it's a really beautiful story. Also, um, watching the Beru's Australian story is really enlightening as well. So tell us, what are the projects you're working on? 
currently, writing or otherwise? Oh, as you just said, the project right now is the baby. It's it's hard to... Uh, she's um, six months old now, and it's hard to get much else done with a six-month-old baby, I'm, I'm afraid. But I have all sorts of ideas and projects in my head. Um, the, the main one is I'm actually... Um, I've put together an advocacy group called AWADA, Australian um, Wrongful and Arbitrary Detention Alliance. Um, we haven't officially launched it yet, but um, it's myself, Sean Turnell, and uh, Nick Coyle, the partner of Chung Lai, the, the journalist who was recently um, returned from China in prison there. We are um, formalising a kind of an informal network that we've been running for a number of years, trying to get the government and, and DFAT to change its policies and approaches toward wrongful detention and get more support for the families of wrongfully detained Australians um, and also look at how when we bring someone home, what kind of reintegration we do for that person as well. So we're advocating on that and I've been putting that together recently. So hopefully that'll launch. Um, it's got a website, but um, we haven't really officially done anything yet, but that's on the horizon for me. Wonderful. Watch this space. Beruz, 10 years after leaving Iran, you're re-establishing yourself, a new life, a new country, a new book. What other projects have you got on the go? Yeah, actually, last year I didn't have a good year in, in terms of uh, writing because of, uh, you know, the situation in Iran, the movement Woman Life Freedom. And that was really intense, so people were, you know, involved. Even people who were not uh, political, they've been involved. And I think that took really my energy for a long time. Uh, but uh, what I do, actually, I am into cinema more these days. So I'm writing a script, actually two scripts with uh, two friends and working on uh, uh, short stories. But I do different things, you know. But uh, I don't know that we have time or not. I wanted to say something about the situation in Iran, actually. I think that is really important because a part of uh, our struggle uh, last year was that, uh, you know, in the countries that we live in, the Western countries, the media or, uh, you know, those who have platform, how they share this platform, and also how they understand that movement in Iran. I think the problem with that is we've been facing lazy journalism. So the Western media didn't try didn't uh, to understand what is happening in Iran. And they, the Western uh, organizations, humanitarian organizations in this country as well, they didn't try to understand it. They didn't try to see the different layers of that movement, you know? And I think that is a kind of a like uh, orientalistic uh, view. Iran is a big country. Iran is a country with 90 million population. Of course, there are many people with different political background and perspective. So you cannot just look at Iran and just uh, take that as slogan without trying to understand it, you know? So what really make, uh, uh, you know, some of us angry is 
that we colonized again in the West, you know, in the media. So this slogan, woman, life, freedom, is a Kurdish narrative that is really important for Iranian people should be important as well. This is a Kurdish narrative that it born in Kurdistan, it uh, is a, you know, it's a part or the main part of Kurdish political culture for at least two decades, you know, in the Evin prison that you were, uh, 14 years ago, the prisoner Shirin Alam Holi, that they executed her, she wrote in the Evin prison, Woman Life Freedom, Jean Jian Azadi. Mm -hmm. So this slogan was reborn in Kurdistan again last year and became a manifesto for the whole country. So when we talk about this, we should acknowledge that. Because if we don't acknowledge that Kurdish narrative, that means we uh, ignore the resistance, the history of resistance behind this, the resistance knowledge that created this uh, such a progressive uh, modern slogan. So that is really important. When we talk about Iran, Iran is a big country with 90 million population. And, and yeah. um, uh, that's a, a point well taken. I know Kylie has also done um, great work behind the scenes in, in supporting the women of Iran um, since that um, uprising began. We have um, uh, had some fantastic conversations here. Please do put your hands together for Beruz Bouchani and Kylie Morgan. Yeah, thank you. You've been listening to Karen Percy in conversation with Beirouz Bouchani and Kylie Moore Gilbert. This event was recorded on Tuesday the 14th of November 2023 at the Wheeler Centre. It was presented in partnership with Penn Melbourne. The official bookseller was The Sun Bookshop. The Wheeler Centre podcast is produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. You can listen to more podcasts or explore videos, news and our full calendar of events at wheelercentre.com.